This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 180, and today I sat down with Stephen Cool, the co-founder and CEO of Burrow. Burrow is a furniture design brand, making it easier for people to settle into their homes. They utilize extensive customer research to design innovative furniture that's more comfortable, functional, durable, and convenient. All Burrow furniture is delivered for free in a week and can be assembled without any tools in minutes. Stephen shares his story from growing up in Syracuse, New York, enjoying freestyle skiing as a kid, to writing an essay about Swiss banking that got him into business school at Cornell, to working in risk management at a consulting firm, to starting his first company, to working at Accenture in Common Fund Capital, to coming up with the idea for Burrow as part of a class project at Wharton. We talk about why it's important to drink your own Kool-Aid, how he built the company to over $100 million in revenue, how luck has played a role in his success, and the importance of working with an executive coach. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us a review, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Burrow. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Lee. You're welcome. And you're in the Hamptons. Little jealous right now that you're in the Hamptons. It's one of my favorite places. It's been a while. How's it going over there? It's great. I love being on the beach. And apparently so does our dog who likes to eat dead sand crabs. And then her breath smells terrible. But, you know, it's And then brings them to you as a gift? No, she just like eats them, like crunches on them on the beach and then comes over and is like puts her face like right in my face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A dog that likes sand crabs. I didn't know they exist. <laughs> is it just your dog or do dogs normally do this? I don't know. She seems to eat more of them than anyone else does. <laughs> Any other dog. And what kind of dog is this? She's a mutt. She's a pitbull boxer schnauzer mix. Oh. Well, she's just living her best life right now. Just uh, right. don't get in those sand crabs. That's right. So, so you are based normally in the city. Where are you from originally? Are you from the East Coast? Yes, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, for the most part, and then lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, for a couple of years when I was younger. And what did your parents do? Did you have siblings? What was it like growing up? I have one older brother. He was three years is three years older than me. And my mom was a teacher for many years. And my dad was an engineer working at power companies, which was why we moved to North Carolina. And then we were probably the only family that moved back 
to New York after moving down there. Why did they move back? Just another job for my mm-hmm. dad. Yeah. So what kind of kid were you? What were you into? Like, what kind of things did you do? Did you, were you athletic? Were, was you like entrepreneurial as a kid? I was mildly athletic. I took the 23andMe test and it tells you like genetic stuff. And mm-hmm. some of them are kind of harsh. It said like, you do not have the elite athlete gene. And really? Like that. It says yeah. that? Oh, I want to take that yeah, test. It's it funny. I definitely don't have that gene either, but... <laughs> yeah, I was like, I didn't need them to tell me to know that I didn't <laughs> no, have it. Way to like, rub it in, 23 and me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but I was a bit of a wild kid. I did like freestyle skiing. What's that? Freestyle skiing? I know what freestyle swimming is, but... Very different. Much more dangerous than freestyle s- swimming. So it's like ski the big jumps and rails and half pipe and stuff on skis. Like tricks. Yeah tricks. Wow. Sounds like it's really hard to learn. Yeah. I mean, I've been skiing since I was, I don't know how old, like I think my parents put me on skis when I was two years old. So I grew up skiing and got pretty good at it. And then living in upstate New York, the skiing, as you can imagine, is not that hard. There's not like really good terrain. So like at the end of middle school, there started to be train parks where there'd be like jumps and rails and stuff for snowboarders. And my friends and I on skis just started going in and doing it too and fell in love with it. And it was a lot of fun. Kind of dumb now in hindsight, looking back at it, because it's like (laughs) the risk reward trade-off doesn't exist. Like the risk is serious injury, which didn't happen. And the reward is like, it kind of looks cool and is fun. And like, you would never sign up for that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what do you mean you got really injured? I shattered my kneecap. I had multiple concussions and all sorts of stuff. Whoa. How old were you? All the injuries happened in high school. Ouch. All just to look really cool and have fun. Oh, geez. Or were you competing? Did you want to be like a professional skier? I did. As a kid, I remember like lying in bed at night and being like, please let me do this professionally, which I'm so glad I didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't good enough. So. I did do competitions and stuff. And I went to ski camp in in the summertime in Whistler. They have a the Blackcomb Glacier you can ski with that. That was a lot of fun. You're it's like 80 degrees out wearing a t-shirt and skiing on essentially like melted ice. But that was a lot of fun. What do you love about skiing? Is it really just like the rush and how fast you can go? Yeah, that's how it started. And then once you start like hitting jumps, you get, you know, you're up in the air, like hitting like 80, 100 foot jumps. It's pretty cool. Like, and we do like flips and spins and it's exhilarating. I mean, I wouldn't do it now, but. So you won't ever do it again. Like you're done with that. You're not like tempted at all to just do a flip here and there if you're on skis. No, I'll like pull my neck getting out of the shower now, you know, (laughs) like back then I could like land on my side on like a 60 foot jump and bounce back up and be like, I'm good. (laughs) You act like you're so old. You're not that old, but it's okay because I feel the same way as you. Where I'm like, I've had so many surgeries. I'm getting shoulder surgery in a month, actually. Because of skiing? You said you weren't skiing anymore. Oh, no. I fell in the parking lot. Stop. Going skiing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So now it's just walking to your car and you're getting surgeries. That's right. Yeah. Like, geez, that does not sound fun. Well, okay. So you really loved skiing back in the day. Definitely hurt yourself. 
when you kind of realized you hurt yourself and maybe pro skiing isn't part of the future, what were you thinking you wanted to do? I didn't know. I mean, I wrote, when I applied to college, I wrote essays about how I was going to go into Swiss banking, which I I didn't even know what that means. And I still actually couldn't tell you. (laughs) Why did you, how did you come up with that? My family did like a Europe trip when I was in middle school and I really liked Switzerland and I was applying to school and I applied to like the undergraduate business major at Cornell and was like, let me put things together that I like, like Switzerland, I can ski in Switzerland, business slash finance, like cool banks, and then wrote an essay about how I was going to go into Swiss banking, which makes no sense. But, you know, I like the creativity, you know, you're like putting it all together somehow. You're like trying to make a soup for yourself that you would enjoy doing. Exactly. You got to enjoy it. I hear you can make a lot of money doing that. Right. (laughs) And I like Switzerland. So <laughs> exactly. So you went to Cornell. Yep. Sounds like this uh, essay you wrote got you in about Swiss banking. Yeah. Or I got in in spite of it, which is probably more like it. But like, yeah, I got in Cornell and then did study finance and didn't really like it, but nevertheless did it. And I rode crew in college. And in high school, but also in college. That was interesting, but that also resulted in injuries, believe it or not. Really? I was like, that's less risky. That could have been a good fit for you. But no, how did you get injured? Back injuries are very common because it's just like a lot of strain repeatedly on your lower back. So I herniated two discs in my back. And by my senior year, I was getting like cortisone shots in my back to keep rowing. And then I was like, no one's paying me to do this. Right? Just stop. Like, why am I doing this? Getting shots. Ouch. So after that, got a job in in 2009. So I graduated with a job and then got a call a month after I graduated that the company was going under. Um, Welcome to the recession. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Got a job. I applied on monster.com. If you remember that website, it might still be around. But I got a job in middle office at a fund of funds hedge fund and basically was like pushing papers. (laughs) Like like quite literally, though, like like filling out forms and putting them into a file cabinet. Like that was essentially my job. And I was really bored and then quickly left and joined a consulting firm doing consulting for investment banks, like risk management consulting. So you can imagine I'll tell you a story. This is how boring that job was. I was in a meeting one time, my boss and I meeting with a client at a bank in the client's office and the client fell asleep in the meeting. What? Yeah. At his own desk. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's like, how does that happen? I mean, how long was this meeting? It was just like a lot of dense material. It was right after lunch. So that doesn't help. Maybe he was allergic to gluten, you know, he just had this big gluten sandwich and he just was like, whoa, it just like took him over. Yeah. He just had a food coma, I think. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow. So you guys didn't do business together, I assume. No, we were in in an engagement with them for, so this was like part of like a project that we were doing for them. But what happened after he fell asleep in this meeting? Did you guys have to wake him up? Poke Like, did you have to poke the bear? No, I just told my boss, I was like, we should just leave. Let's not embarrass him. 
Just let the guy wake up and not wonder what happened. (laughs) So you guys just crept out of the office? Yeah. Yeah, we just left. Did he ever realize he fell asleep or did he think that it just like ended and he forgot? It was never addressed. (laughs) That's awkward. (laughs) So that's why, so you're like, and you, it sounds like you could have fallen asleep too. It was that boring. Yeah. One of my other bosses pulled me aside one time and was like, if you ever feel like you're falling asleep in meetings, just get up and leave the room. You don't have to give an explanation. You can just go and then come back and like splash water on your face, whatever. People will just assume you have to do something and they're not going to ask questions, but it's a lot better than actually falling asleep. Right. And I was like, that's really good advice. But why do you think I need that advice? And he was like, come on. I've seen you in the cafe for meetings. That's hilarious. So I knew that that wasn't a career for me. Or is it just part of the job? Like, does this happen maybe a lot? I mean, he had like a full script for you on like what to do if you feel like you're going to fall asleep. Like it's a normal thing to get super bored in those meetings. Yeah. Well, risk management for banks, not the most exciting. So you realize that's not for you. What did you do after that? You just left, you quit, went where? Well, so when I first graduated, I'd also started a small business with a friend of mine. He lived about an hour north of the city and we were we were roommates in New York City. And his parents, an hour north of the city, were right by this private school. And during like spring break or different breaks or whatever, they would host some of the students at their place, kids who came from primarily Asia and weren't going to fly home for, you know, a couple of days. And so they'd stay with like host families, like around the area. So we were talking to these kids one time. We're like, how did you find the Storm King school? It's a tiny little private school. Like, how did you find this growing up in China? And they're like, well, we work with these advisors that help us get into private schools. And then they'll actually help us get into college too. And we were like, how much do these people charge? Are they good? And they were like, well, they cost a lot of money. And they're not good. And the one, the one kid was like, my brother wanted to go to UNC, meaning UNC Chapel Hill. And his college application was sent to UNC Charlotte. And that's where he then went to school because he got it. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Poor kid. Yeah. So we were like, maybe we could do this better. And so we started doing it. Like we got connected through those kids' families to like other families. And we would help kids in high school get into private boarding schools in the U.S. and then help them with their college applications to get into college. It was actually kind of wild. So some of the kids went to like boarding schools. Some of them just went to private schools in the city, which means they needed to live in an apartment and they needed a legal guardian. So my friend and I were legal guardians to high school kids. And some of them actually lived in our apartment. We had this like big apartment. And that was just like a very interesting experience where we were 22 years old, going to parent-teacher conferences. Wow, right. (laughs) So I eventually left the consulting job and just did what we call, it was the company was called Ivy Student Management. And we did that full, I did that full time for a little while. And then after a while, my friend and I were both like, we don't really like managing high school kids or college kids. It's a lot of work, not very rewarding. And so I applied to Accenture to do strategy consulting and did that for two and a half years. And that was great. That was kind of like the beginning of my formal, like professional training experience. Mm -hmm. I learned a bunch about myself and about what I wanted to do and got to work on some really interesting projects. But what I learned was 
if I didn't care about the product that the company sold, it didn't really matter what work I was doing. So I did a couple of projects for American Express. And some of those are more on like the innovation side, like developing new products to help the customer experience like online, like bring it to be more digital. And I found that really fascinating and interesting to understand like how do consumers think and how do you tap into insights from talking to them about their needs and then like build products that support that experience. And I love that even though the project that I was doing wasn't necessarily like we weren't designing it for them. We were just kind of like doing some like project management stuff related to the project. But I love that and then did operating model design projects for a handful of companies where, you know, we're coming in and mapping out the actual like go forward org structure of a company and like figuring out should they acquire another business like to add on a new capability, which would be really exciting work, you would think. Except I thought that the companies, there was like companies that built the racks for data centers. And like, that is about the most boring thing you can make in the world. So I I just wasn't interested in it. And so I was like, you know what? I definitely want to work at a consumer products company. Something that like is actually exciting and, and interesting. But I also wanted to make more money. So I, I went into uh, investing after that. Where did you work in the investing world? And I assume it's focused on consumer because you realized that you like the consumer space. Yeah, I wanted to do to have some consumer exposure. So I went to a place called Common Fund Capital, which is a fund of funds in Connecticut. And so I did like a reverse commute from the city, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Bought a Fiat and (laughs) did the reverse commute in a Fiat every day. So no train, you were going to drive. No train. It was, which, you know, it was actually, so it was in Wilton, Connecticut, which I don't know if you know Connecticut, but Wilton's like kind of far up in Mm. Connecticut and you have to transfer trains to go there. And Um, so, yeah, I I would drive. No, I drove a little too fast, but I could do it door to door in about an hour, which wasn't terrible. Still a pretty heavy commute, but how was it being on the investment side? It was cool. It was really cool. So like I spent a year on the private equity team, a year in the venture capital team. And so we would invest in funds, right? So like Benchmark, Excel, et cetera, like all these like VC funds, we'd invest in them. But then we'd also co-invest alongside them directly into some of the companies. So I got to work on, we co-invested with Benchmark Capital into WeWorks B, C, and D. Got to meet Adam Newman and Miguel and the whole team there, which was really fascinating. And from those experiences, I was like, oh, you know what's better than like investing in consumer companies is just like working at these companies. Like that would be really cool. And so I applied to business school, not knowing what I exactly what I wanted to do next, but figured that would be like a good step in the right direction. And I could probably go work for a startup if I went to business school. And so you went to Wharton, I think, right? Yep. And how was your experience there? Do you feel like it prepared you for working in a brand? Yeah. I mean, so I don't think anybody who goes to business school will tell you they learn a ton in school per se from like the actual classes. Some of them you do, right? There's definitely, I'm not, I'm not trying to like say that none of the classes are worthwhile. There's definitely a lot of things that you learn. It depends on like your connection with the professor and whatnot. But for the most part, we learned on the fly. So I took an entrepreneurship class right at the beginning of school. This was 2015. 
And as part of the class, you have to start a company. Like you don't actually have to start a company, right? You make a pitch deck and a business plan and everything. But at the beginning of the class, the professor holds up a deck for Jand. And it's like, he says, if you actually like take this seriously and you have a really good idea and you really believe in it and you want to build it, like you could actually turn it into a real company. This is a company that was started in this class. Jand is the legal name or formerly legal name of Warby Parker because it was Jeff, Andy, Neil, Dave. And was your teacher David Bell? I did have David Bell. David Bell's <laughs> one of our investors. Nice. Like this all sounds so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And yeah, so I mean, everyone who goes to Wharton graduates with a master's in Warby Parker because they just right. they teach it in every single class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my co-founder Kabir and I got connected in school and we decided to work together in that class. And we were just having drinks one night talking about moving to Philadelphia and how buying furniture was such a pain in the ass. And he had gone to West Elm, picked out a sofa that he wanted, was told for the color that he wanted, he had to wait 12 weeks. And he was like, I'm not waiting 12 weeks. Like, what do you have in stock? And they were like, well, we have this floor model. It's like red orange that you could take home from the store. And he was like, fine, whatever. And they said, okay, we'll ship it to you. It's $250 for shipping. And he was like, that's nuts. I will go get a cart for my building. I'll be right back. And he wheeled it home on the sidewalk to avoid paying the delivery fee. (laughs) And I bought an Ikea couch, which I assembled on my floor for like four hours with an Allen key and had to like physically upholster it with Velcro. And I was like, this is terrible. And the couch Mm -hmm. sucked. And this was also right when Casper and a bunch of these mattress in a box companies were taking off. And so we were like, I wonder if that could be our, our project is like, do what they're doing for mattresses for all of furniture. Right. And that's, so that's what we worked on for the class. And the more we did research, the more we really fell in love with like this opportunity to build this. And it was a consumer products company, which we were both interested in. Kabir had run the retail analytics practice for Michael Kors and was an engineer and had co-founded like a payments company previously. So we had very different skill sets, but both interested in the same thing and really complemented each other. So we were like, we should do this. Like, let's actually start the company. That's great. And so you put together the pitch deck for class and presented the business plan and then just kept going. Sounds like what happened after you graduated? So we did it for the class and then we applied to like every on-campus pitch competition and business plan thing and whatever, and just got rejected from everything. Everybody was like, no, this is too complicated, won't work. And the main idea was, okay, people are buying everything online except for furniture. At the time, less than 20% of furniture was sold online. But it will, like people will buy their furniture online, right? It'll be more than 50% within the next like 10 years, Mm -hmm. more than 50% of furniture will be sold online. Furniture is big and bulky. It's expensive to warehouse. It's expensive to ship. The delivery experience is God awful when you have to take a half day off work for somebody to come and deliver it. And then they destroy your home and you have to weeks or months to receive your furniture, all these like problems. And we were like, if you design everything to ship in small boxes, like small parcel boxes that can be delivered with FedEx or UPS ground, you can deliver everything in a week. 
you can make a significantly better experience for the customer because they don't have to be home when it arrives. And if you just design the products to be easily assembled, like with no tools, like nothing like Ikea, that's a better customer experience. And then because we're designing the products ourselves, we can do all this customer research to understand like, how do you make it more comfortable, functional, durable, et cetera, just like make the best version of this product for consumers. And in our research, we found that the reason why nobody does this is because brands that you buy from are just going to factories and sourcing products. They go to these like, it's like a fashion business. They're not like designing these things with like the consumer in mind. They're just picking it out from factories and the factories are like chasing trends. They see at these like shows that happen multiple times a year. And it's this big like system that every furniture company has been built on. And the only people that have like done their own thing and like tried to innovate are Ikea, which they did a very good job of that. And that's kind of it, right? Anyway, so so nobody had done this, but it was it was definitely complicated to get started. And so nobody thought it was a good idea to work on this. But we applied to Y Combinator in the spring and got in. So the summer between our first and second year of business school, we were living out in, in California in San Francisco and commuting to uh, Palo Alto every day and went through YC. And when we got there, they were like, look, we believe you can make, cause we didn't, we hadn't made the product yet. We had never like, we were going to start with a sofa, a modular sofa, and we hadn't actually made one yet, but they're like, we believe that you can make it. We just don't know if you can sell it. So if you, by the end of this summer, when you get to demo day and you pitch to all these investors, you need to prove that people actually want this thing. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, shit, let's <laughs> have a product. So we found a factory outside of Mexico City who was willing to produce for us in prototype. And then we made a Squarespace page and started taking pre-orders, like launched a pre-order campaign for a sofa that didn't exist, really. We like Photoshopped a, a regular sofa to look like it was modular and said it came in boxes. And so started to try to get pre-orders. And we fortunately got some press from being a company that sells furniture in Y Combinator, which is kind of right. abnormal. Definitely. We got some press around that and then just started retargeting people on Facebook who had visited the website. And by demo day, we had $150,000 worth of pre-orders wow. for the product. And so we were able to raise money. And then second year of school, we got back to school and we're like, went to the dean's office and we're like, hey, we want to graduate, but like, we also want to work on Burrow full time. Mm-hmm. And they were like, cool, get a couple of professors to sign off on these independent study projects. And like, you'll get credit for working on the company and you'll like do write-ups with them, like stuff for marketing or ops and whatnot. And the professors loved that. Like David Bell was one of them. Yeah. So it was great. So my second year, I think half my class thinks I dropped out because I was living in New York. <laughs> right. They're like, where'd he go? Where'd Steven go? You're like, I'm building a company, guys. See ya. Um, yeah. I would come back on weekends just to hang out with people. And funny. I was at the time dating my now wife and we met in school. So Oh, wow. Would... So she's been through the whole journey with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's wild. And so that's great. You're able to, I guess, get on stage at the Y Combinator demo day with $150,000 in pre-orders, which was a good, I'm sure, boost and start to a fundraising process, maybe the first one. Can you talk to us about your first raise? Yeah. So the first, we raised $4.3 million in seed funding, all on safe notes. 
So there was no lead investor who priced the round. We just kept raising from anyone we could meet who Mm -hmm. we could convince to write a check. And it started out like five to $10,000 checks and grew to our biggest one was a $500,000 check. Nice. And it was just like, as we made progress, right? First, we started delivering our first pre-orders. People were giving us money. Then we were growing the business. People kept giving us money. And we, you know, meet a group of people who it's like, oh yeah, me and my friends all do these angel investments together. We each write $25,000 checks and that'd be a group of, you know, six or eight people. And then we'd ask them like, do you know anybody else who invests in startups and meet their friends? And yeah, eventually cobbled together 4.3 million bucks. And our last safe note that we got was November of 2017. And then in, in March of 2018, we raised our series A. Wow. So lots of money on the safe. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So I guess in those early days, as you were kind of validating and raising money and building your team and you just got out of business school, what were some of the challenges you faced in getting the business really off the ground? I mean, in the early days, our gross margins were terrible. Like we had mapped out our business. Like we knew that at scale from our research, we could get to north of 50% gross margins, including free delivery to the customer, which we are now at. And that's like best in class for furniture. Mm -hmm. But starting out when you're trying to just convince factories to even work with you and you're working with smaller factories, and we didn't have our like pricing dialed in yet or anything, right? Like we're still really small. Our margins were like in the single digits. So we were losing a lot wow. of money in the early days to actually just start building this. And we like couldn't make, I mean, I would we'd start a month with like a hundred thousand dollars in the bank and know that we're gonna spend three hundred thousand dollars that month. And then I'd go out and raise like two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars, and then we'd end the month with like slightly less money, and it was just that cycle like constantly. So that was like the biggest challenge, I would say. And then also like convincing factories to work with us. Like the first factory that worked with us was tiny, but getting people with any sort of real scale to take us seriously when we didn't come from furniture. That was probably one of the hardest things early on. It's just how did like you guys convincing. do that? Yeah. How did you convince them? Just a lot of bullshit. And then... <laughs> what do you mean? You're like, we have so many sales. You can't even believe it. You know, I mean, how do you... How did you... What do you mean? How do you navigate that? So, you know, like how Elizabeth Holmes was telling people that her product worked and it mm-hmm. didn't. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like I I sort of understood the sentiment, like maybe the early sentiment. Now she took it like ten thousand times too far, where right. it was like, no, you're just defrauding people now. But like, right. Every startup has an element of that where it's like you sort of just have to pretend like something is really, really, really good, even though you're not there yet. But you have yeah. to do it for things that you know can do it, right? Like I knew we could get to certain milestones that we had not achieved yet, but like they were physically possible. It wasn't like I was like I had to invent a product that could never exist. Right. But the yeah, the fake it till you make it thing is is real. You just like tell people like, oh yeah, we're great. We've got the best in class person at this. We've got the best in class person at that. Like we're doing all these things. And then, you know, eventually you get there. And I'm sure that helped a lot in fundraising too. I mean, that's mostly the game. Totally. Totally. And we weren't raising money from anyone who came from furniture. So it was kind of, <laughs> it was easy to bullshit them about that process. Like we're working with the best factory. We were not, we were working with not the best factory in the beginning. I mean, cause you may not, who is the best factory, you know, I mean, maybe you didn't even know who the best factory was. There's probably a few of them and you were new Did to the not game. Know. We're working with the best factories around the world now, but we were not at the time. And we couldn't have back then because you have to have pretty significant scale to work with the best factories who are like highly automated. But you get lucky with certain breaks and it all comes down. I mean, luck is huge, right? I think most people don't give enough credit to how much luck plays into it. Like even finding our first factory, we found through a friend in business school who was from Mexico City. And so she happened to have a connection to somebody who ran a small furniture factory. And they were the only people that were willing to work with us. And then as we grew, we started producing a lot with this big factory in North Carolina And I met him. I met the CEO through like my brother helped me out. And we went, he, he, my brother was like, you got to reach out to the economic development teams at this, like the state department for like, you know, there's people whose sole job it is to bring commerce to their state. Like talk to those people. They will introduce you to every single person you need to know. So my brother and I went on this like tour across North Carolina and Mississippi and met all these different factories and got connected to this one factory that was pretty big. And the CEO and I just hit it off. And he was like, you know, you guys are not big enough for us, but I believe in you. And I think this is a really cool idea and let's work on it together. And I'm willing to take a risk on it and we'll figure out the pricing as we go. And to his credit, he did. And we we spent a lot of time working through some ups and downs and we're able to scale pretty significantly with them. And that's like what enabled us to get to the point that we're big enough to work with some of the best factories around the world today. Isn't it crazy? I think one of the questions I like to ask is what is something you didn't realize about your job as a founder or CEO? And I think, you know, just hearing you and in my own experience, I think maybe you'd agree one of the things could be just how much conviction you actually really need to deeply have you got to drink your Kool-Aid every day. Like you have to drink it and share it and drink it again and again. And it's probably exhausting. But is there anything else that maybe came as a surprise for you that you didn't really expect when you were building this business? I mean, I completely agree with you. You do have to drink it because I've tried to be a salesperson. I sold insurance for a summer and I like just despised it, hated it so much. You do have to drink your own Kool-Aid if you're going to sell something constantly, because that's all you're doing early on is just selling people. But the thing that surprised me is just how 
prevalent the word no is in any industry, any job where people just tell you, no, that can't be done. And sometimes it's you meet people who are lazy. Sometimes people just feel threatened by what you're doing. People are oftentimes default to no, like that's impossible or no, you can't do that. It surprised me how often you had to just be like, no, I actually think there's a way to do it if you problem solve. And it's hard. It's way harder to do that. But like when it's your company and it's like, we either figure this one thing out or we fail, you figure it out. Right. Right. And you have to have that mentality. And then you have to like train your team to have the mentality of like, I don't want to hear no, unless like you've tried a thousand different ways to figure this out. And then if it's still a no, sometimes it is a no. Right. But like, it can't be no right out of the gate. And that surprised me how often that happens. Right. That you have to always kind of deal with people's mindsets. About yeah. That. Yeah. It's like, you have to convince people or show it to them or prove it to them. And I mean, whether it's investors or it's partners you're working with or vendors or whatever, right? Like there's, there's usually a way to figure something out. And right. in that process of figuring it out, you actually like take like leaps and bounds forward in your progress. Number one, number two, you also realize this is why no one's done things a certain right. way. No one's ever thought to do things differently because it's really hard. And in fact, mm -hmm. if I knew how hard it was to get factories to build something that we designed and engineered, as opposed to something that they designed, I probably wouldn't have started Burrow, but Kabir and I were naive enough and like inexperienced enough to not know that. And so therefore we were tr we tried, but if you knew how hard it was, you'd be like, oh my God, that's not, not worth it. <laughs> right? I know, I get so many founders that say that on the show. They're like, if I knew what I knew now, I don't think I'd do it. But that's the whole ignorance is bliss that you need to start something so innovative and different. Exactly. So when you look back on the growth of the business over the past couple of years, when you guys first started out and grew year over year, you know, what were some of the milestones that you guys hit from a growth perspective and where are you guys today? So I think we, we launched the brand formally in April, 2017. And we were doing first like 100K a month, then it kind of grew to like 300K a month by October. And then we figured a couple of things out with our pricing structure and, and whatnot and did three quarters of a million in November. Black Friday helped, right? Like furniture is a category that people are kind of trained to buy during sale periods. But like we had gone through like Labor Day and Memorial Day, right? So like mm -hmm. it wasn't the first sale period that we'd gone through, but we really smashed it and figured some things out. And so then we were like approaching a million dollars a month. And so that was like the big milestone that everyone said, like you hit a million a month in consumer products, you can raise a series A. And so that did enable us to go raise our series A as we were approaching that. And then other milestones. So we did about 3 million in our first year, 14 million in our second year, which is big growth. However, I yep. had projected 30 million in our second year, which is really, really dumb. Wow, that's aggressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> I mean, 14 million is still aggressive and you guys hit that. Is it because you thought, is it because you were aiming for 30 that you landed at 14? Like, how does that happen? It might have been, but then we like way overspent and like burned through way too much cash after that. But on what exactly? What did you spend the most money on in order to go from 3 million to 14? Honestly, like, so we did that efficiently. We got to a million a month, like fairly efficiently, which would be 12 million. And then we overspent, like we did 
subway ads and advertise on like every digital platform possible, like including on FanDuel, right? Like FanDuel is not a great place to advertise for furniture. I don't know why we did that, but we were just like, we have all this money. We're going to put our names out everywhere. Everyone will know about us and then we'll grow faster. And then you learn like, no, like marketing is actually much more scientific and like nuanced than that. But it's still kind of worked, right? I mean, it sounds like you grew a lot and you, I mean, what did you do after, if you did 3 million the first year, 14 million the next year, what's the third year look like? And was that strategy working? Would you do it differently? We paired way back, got way more efficient. We did 21 our third year, which is still good growth, but mm-hmm. 50% after growing like multiples in the in year two was not what we wanted, but we got much more efficient. And then we were starting to plan for like expanding our product line. So we were going to go from, we were going to make the transition from being a sofa company to being a furniture brand. So we started launching, designing and launching new products. And that like the more products we launched, the higher our average order value grew, mm-hmm. repeat purchase rate went up, size of repeat purchase rate went up, but the cost to acquire a new customer kind of remained flat. So that was like the secret sauce of like, this is how we're going to build a big profitable business. And so we got more efficient in 2019 and then we were growing pretty steadily and then COVID hit. And that turned out to be pretty amazing from a demand perspective because everyone was stuck at home, acutely aware of their furniture and how yep. much they didn't like the furniture. <laughs> and they were going to spend, be spending a lot of time on their furniture. So a lot of people bought furniture in 2020 and 2021. And we grew, I mean, everyone in the furniture grew, but we grew like multiples. Like we grew faster than anybody else. So we went from... 20 to 50 to 100, like over the next couple of years, which was awesome. Yeah. Now, COVID also had plenty of challenges. Costs like went through supply the chain, probably as well. Supply chain got disrupted um, down for like four months, which was not great. And what went down for four months? Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just completely shut down. And so we couldn't produce there for a while. And then freight went through the roof, like an ocean container that previously cost $2,500 to ship from Asia to the US peaked at around 25,000, which is what we spent millions of dollars extra on freight during that. Cause like there was just all this port congestion and, and like supply shortage of containers. 25 to 25,000? Yeah, 2,500 to 25,000. 2,500. Okay, yeah. I was, yeah, 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 that. Yeah, I was like, you're saying $25? I'm saying, hey, it doesn't make no, sense. But no, also, like, I'm like, that's a huge jump. That's a lot of zeros. Yeah, no, just 10 times. But still, I mean. Yeah, that's still a big jump. Yeah, it was it was crazy. So lots of challenges from that. And it costs a lot of money. But we've been able to navigate it. And I mean, you probably saw like, if you bought furniture in 2021, most companies were quoting you like six months to a year to deliver it. And we were able to get... The worst we got was like three months for delivery on anything. And for most stuff, we pretty quickly got it back down to one to two weeks, which is great. So we navigated that pretty well. And now we're in that next phase where it's like, we just got to... We're trying to steadily scale efficiently 
and not be like so up and down, up and down, up and down. But I think that's just how it is, right? Like, I don't know if there is, it's like, it's just up and down. <laughs> it is, do it is up, up and down. The ups and downs, I think, I mean, COVID was kind of a black swan event, right? right. So yeah. I, I would hope that that doesn't continuously happen. Right. Let's not have another one of those, please. Yikes. So, I mean, such an innovative idea. You guys have really done such an incredible job in the furniture space, just creating something new and unique. I mean, I, I love the video you have on your website where they're just like snapping together the couch. It's just like, what? How did you think of this? You know, it's just so obvious. It's one of those things that just feels so obvious. Like, why didn't this exist before? Like, why does it have to be one huge thing that like takes down your front door when you try to take it, bring it in the house? You know, why does it have to be one big solid piece of furniture? It's really cool what you've built. And when you think about what's next for Burrow, what's coming soon? We're just scratching the surface with new products. So we, for the next five plus years, you'll see us crank out probably like, I don't know, like 10 to 15 new, really cool things every single year. And that's what I love doing the most is like doing customer research, interviewing people, focus groups, surveys, to uncover these like key insights. And it's like, you know, we'll, we work with our designers to be like, oh, this is the thing that we can make this product be really, really special for people and then bring it to life and develop it and launch it and do storytelling around it differently. And like a great example of that is we just launched our first sleeper sofa nice. and sleeper sofas are the most uncomfortable beds, most uncomfortable couches. They're heavy, they're expensive just terrible. And so we like really tapped into how people use them, which is it's primarily a bed that just has to store away as compactly as a sofa when it's not in use, right? It's like for people that have this other room, that's like, yeah, it'll be a second bedroom, but it also needs to be your office or your gym or something, right? That you're going to mm -hmm. use it for. And so we started instead of with a couch that has some mechanism that pops out into a bed, we started with a queen mattress and then said, like, if you could have this real queen mattress fold in half, and then that would be like your base for the sofa. You can put like a thin sofa profile around it, put cushions on it. And that's, that's a couch. That's a comfortable couch, but it's main purpose is a bed. And so that's why we wanted to use a real mattress. And then we did like little clever things like the side cushions, the side pillows for the couch. You take the covers off and they're actually pillows for your head. So all you need to do is like bring queen sheets and put it on the, on the bed. Nice. And we just launched that with zero marketing. We did over $250,000 in sales in the first month. Wow. Well, it looks really cool. I'm looking at it now on the website and it looks really, really cool. It makes me think of like Murphy bed, you know, yeah. I've always been thinking like, because everybody with home offices is like, oh my gosh, you just have to maximize the space in your home so much more now. Yes, and the Murphy exactly. bed space is like, there's nothing out there that's no. Like, and but a Murphy bed, you have to like install. Like, is it permanently there? Do you, you're gonna have to hire right. somebody. That's a huge installation process. Versus mm -hmm. our shift sleeper sofa is like, you get it in boxes in the mail. You sit it up in a few minutes, and you know, yeah, there you have it. It's a couch. It's a nice yeah. looking couch. And you have a twin size one too. So it's like a queen and a and a twin. So you can kind of choose. Yeah. The other thing is our sleep kit that turns, you can buy any sofa you want, and then you can just turn it into a twin bed with the sleep kit, which then stores away like in a closet when you're not using it. Amazing. 
Awesome. Well, what can you tell us about how you've grown, you know, before we wrap up really quick, just two more questions. How have you grown personally and professionally as a leader? Like, how do you describe your leadership style and how have you evolved as a leader over the past couple of years? So my one biggest piece of advice for entrepreneurs is get an executive coach. So I hired an executive coach in late 2019 and she has helped me develop so much more than I ever could have on my own. You learn, I mean, number one, you're going through this like really unique experience where no one's giving you feedback as the CEO. And it's easy to like sort of create an echo chamber with people that report to you or just convince yourself that you're doing a good job. And the truth is you're probably not, right? And like the most elite athletes have coaches for every aspect of what they do. And you're supposed to be, you're trying to become the best leader in the field that you're doing. Like, how could you do it without a coach? And so I've been working with my coach for a couple of years now. And, and you know, you just learn how to handle situations better. You learn things about how to communicate with your team better. Like we have these all hands meetings every month, right? And then we also do employee engagement surveys. And in the engagement surveys, people said they didn't know what our company strategy was. Now we talked about, we talk about like the strategy is launch new products and like get more efficient at marketing and scale it, right? Like all, it's all the things we're doing is our strategy, right? Right. But I would never said to people, this is our strategy. This is how we're going to grow. And this is how we're going to like be better at operating. And so it's just simple things like that, where I say that at the beginning of every all hands, like here's a reminder of here's our strategy for this year. And here's what we're focused on for this quarter, but calling it strategy And suddenly, like, everyone's like, I know exactly what our strategy is. The exec team is very transparent. And there's like all these little things like that, that you just might not even occur to you, but having somebody that can like focus you and train you on like how to handle situations better and and work with people better and everything that has made me a significantly better leader. So I think leadership style is to, I think, number one, give very clear direction. That's something you learn over time is like, don't be afraid to give tough feedback just because you might hurt someone's feelings. Like you're just going to make them worse at their job. And then you're going to get mad at them for not doing things right. And whatever, it's just not great. So give clear feedback, set clear direction, check in with people frequently. And then, but then I'm kind of like hands off to some extent, like you definitely need to empower people and accept that they won't do things exactly like you would do it. But as long as the outcome is, similar, you should not care. And the forcing function, like I kind of learned that just by being too busy to do everything, right? You're kind of like forced people. You're like, oh, I won't be able to review that thing. But you're like, actually, do I need to? Do I have to review that thing? Or do I trust that they know what they're doing and they actually care enough that they're going to do a good job with it? And you sort of just kind of figure out that calibration over time. And I think that's really critical. And if you want to like develop and grow people, and there's some things you learn that you like, I still have to be involved in this no matter what, but set those clear boundaries of like, these are the things I'll be involved in. These are the things I won't. These are the things I'm entrusting you to do a good job with. And then you really have to like practice what you preach when you say like, hey, it's okay to make mistakes because we learn from them. You have to then act really cool when people make mistakes and actually make a big deal about it in a good way. Like, no, 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 it's great. Like now, you know, like when you do this thing, or you don't check this thing, this is the consequence. So I'm sure you feel terrible about it, but guess what you won't do ever again? It's not check that thing. 
And you would have only learned that probably by not checking it, right? So like, it's okay. Like, this is a learning experience. We're still here. Your mistake didn't sink the company. <laughs> so yeah, thankfully. So just don't do it again. <laughs> yeah, don't do it again. <laughs> Did cost us $45,000, which is a lot of money. <laughs> it oh is gosh. half your salary, but you know, just saying. <laughs> oh my gosh. The conversations are so tough. I mean, even giving tough feedback, you know, how do you just, some people are really sensitive, you know, and you want to be careful. They're not going to just jump ship if you give them tough feedback and they're not used to it. Or, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like it's so hard. That's like one of the hardest things to navigate is like telling someone really tough feedback. Right. Yeah. I think the one thing it is hard, but the best tip that I've picked up on is however you approach a conversation and imagine the other person is going to receive it has a huge impact on how the conversation will go. So if you're giving feedback to somebody and your assumption is they want this feedback and they're going to be appreciative of it and they're going to be happy that we're like improving, you're kind of like leading the witness of like, hey, so like we've got this like thing and tell you it's going to help us get better. And then they sort of like you're cueing them as to like how they should react. It's almost like when a toddler falls down. And if you're like, oh my God, are you okay? They start crying. And if you go, yay, and clap, they're like, whoa, okay. Like, Do you have a toddler? I don't, but this is- I like was my... like, I have a toddler and that is exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But yeah, so it's like, you're sort of like training them in that moment of how they should react in the situation. It doesn't always happen, right? But if you approach it like, hey, like I know you, and I'm sorry in advance, right. then they're like, okay, whoa, what's coming? Right. Yes. That's a really, really good perspective to have and some great advice. Normally I'll wrap and ask, you know, what final advice you have for entrepreneurs, but you've already shared so much. If there's anything else you want to add, feel free. No, I mean, I actually think you made the best point of like, whatever you're working on, make sure you have like really, really, really strong conviction in it. And you really want to spend a lot of your time doing it because there will be some really dark periods and you're going to have to convince a thousand people that what you're doing is the right thing. So just make sure you have that early on. And if you don't, you know, don't waste your time doing it. Right. Yeah. It'll be exhausting. Imposter syndrome is already really real. You know, if you don't have that inner internal conviction to keep you going, it's going to be really hard to do what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing your awesome story and building Burrow. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Leigh. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.